Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are such a generous God. Thanks for the gift of your word. May we not take that lightly and grant that now we would pay close attention to it and sit under it in all humility. Please may we benefit from your word. Grow us, change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, most of us enjoy a good bit of summer reading. If that's you, and and honestly, even if that's not you, 1 Thessalonians should definitely be on your summer reading list. If you're a morning person, I reckon one flat white and one Krispy Kreme donut will get you through the whole letter. If you're a beach person, head out to Kos, or uh, I live north, so Mullaloo is my beach of choice. Take your Bible out to the beach, sit on that sand, open up 1 Thessalonians. By the time you've weighed your way through, uh, you'll be just about crisp enough to really enjoy, to appreciate that salt, sea, refreshing, cool water. Today we are going to take a deep dive into this remarkable letter. And so let me set the scene not just for today, but for our entire summer preaching series. Because this is what we're going to go through in January at all of our services. 1 Thessalonians. So let me begin this afternoon by telling you a true story about the place and the people that 1 Thessalonians takes its name from. Now, a few hundred years before Jesus was born, a city was founded by a man named Cassander. He was an army officer of Alexander the Great, and as entrepreneuring conquerors with a flair for the romantic did in those days, he named the place after his wife, Thessalonica. And you can see it on the map in just a second here. Thanks, Ron. Pardon? Oh, I'll tell you what. We'll, we'll be all right. Yep. No worries. Imagine. <laughs> there is a map right there. And on it, you will see roughly the area of modern-day Greece. And at the top of a little gulf, there you would find the city of Thessalonica. Uh, so... Cassander founded that city, but fast forward to the middle of the first century, around 50 AD, and Thessalonica was a thriving city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Macedonia. It was situated a really uh, geopolitically strategic point. It had a beautiful gulf, a natural harbor. It lay on the Ignatian Way, which was like the highway, the freeway, that linked Rome with the eastern part of its empire. Now, spiritually, Thessalonica was like an all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, Sample what you want, stuff your face with whatever you want, just make sure you don't tick off the owner. Just make sure you pay the bill. Just make sure you fall in line with Caesar. That's the line you don't cross. The Thessalonians live next to water, and I'll tell you what, they could have drowned in a sea of the various gods and religions and religious practices that were there in 50 AD. And so into that morass of of spiritual chaos and confusion enter three men, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. In Acts 17, which is where you can read this story, 
tells us that during his second missionary journey, Paul, along with Silas and Timothy, arrived at Thessalonica, uh, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as was his custom, Paul went there. He opened the scriptures, and he used the scriptures to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, some Jews were persuaded. Some, like a man named Jason, were persuaded and welcomed Paul into his home. But it seems like even more Greeks, including a number of very influential women, responded favorably to Paul's preaching. So far, so good, right? But, but this ministry success made some of the Thessalonian Jews super jealous. So jealous that they rounded up a bunch of bad characters from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, people that the King James Version amusingly calls lewd fellows of the baser sort, and offered them an excuse to cause trouble. So anyway, the Jews used this ruffian rent-a-mob to start a full-on riot in Thessalonica. And then things got really scary because they started a targeted search for Paul and Silas. They wanted to bring them out to the justice of the mob. The mob rushed to Jason's house. They didn't find Paul and Silas there, but they did find Jason and some other believers, and so they dragged them out before the city officials. They leveled accusations against them, and then finally, they let them go on bail. Far out, eh? You, you want a reaction? Preach the gospel. That'll stir people up. That'll get a rise out of people. So with the city in turmoil, with tension at the boiling point, and Paul and Silas' safety in the balance, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea that very night. Now, time passed. Time passed, and and Paul and Silas desperately wanted to return to Thessalonica to see how the Christians there were going. And you can imagine the, the, the questions that were running through their heads. How were the Thessalonian Christians going? Were they still Christian? Were they still following Jesus? Have they been tempted away from Christ? All our gospel work there. What Was it all in vain? Was it worth it? Well, Paul and Silas were actually prevented from going to Thessalonica, but they were able to send Timothy, their gospel partner, to go and visit the Thessalonians and report about their faith. So Timothy traveled to Thessalonica, and then he returned to Corinth, which is where Paul and Silas were, with his report. And if you're wondering, well, hey, what what was that report? What did Timothy find out? Well, you're on the right track because that's surely what Paul and Silas would have been waiting with bated breath for. So, spoiler alert, the Thessalonians were going well. They were going real well. I mean, in in cricket terms, it was as if they'd opened the batting, they hadn't lost a wicket despite some strong bowling from the opposition, and their batting was anything but flimsy and ordinary. In fact, it was quite the opposite. They were exemplary. So Timothy delivered his report. And then he, Paul and Silas, sat down together. They put quill to parchment or whatever it was in those days and composed their response. Now remember that this was, of course, well before the days of the Pony Express Morse code, posties on two wheels, email on dial-up connection, FaceTime on your phone. 
I couldn't even respond to Timothy's report on the Thessalonian WhatsApp group with some witty and clever emoticons. Communication happened slow, and so they wrote a letter. And that's the letter that you hold in your Bibles today. In fact, it's probably the earliest of Paul's letters in the New Testament. In fact, just like Ben read the opening of that letter out for us earlier, it's quite likely that that entire letter would have been read aloud to the Thessalonian believers. So let me take you on a quick tour through the first chapter, the first ten verses of the letter that we know as 1 Thessalonians. And I'll give you some headings to follow along as we go. Be helpful if you had your Bibles open. Feel free to take some notes as we move through. Heading number one, verse one, the gospel greeting. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, the three amigos, the gospel partner trio. To the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Now look, this would be the easiest thing to pass over, right? But did you hear that? (laughs) Did you hear that there is a church in Thessalonica? I think that's remarkable. Remember where we left their story in the book of Acts. That powder keg of a place was so primed to explode that two pillars of early Christian ministry, Paul and Silas, had to be sent away under cover of night for their own protection. And despite that rocky start, despite civic unrest and a hostile atmosphere, it couldn't snuff out the progress of the gospel. A church was born in Thessalonica, and all that trouble couldn't kill it dead. Now, if you traveled there almost 2,000 years ago, if you were there, you'd find a group of gathered people, maybe somewhat similar to us this afternoon, living under the lordship of Jesus Christ, brought into being by God their maker. You'd find people who deserved, and knew it, who deserved war with their maker, but had been granted peace with him forever. You'd find people vastly different from the people they were before Paul and Silas and Timothy arrived with the gospel. And friends, that's what the gospel does. This is what it does. It takes spiritual prostitutes and spiritual orphans, rebellious individuals like us, and it gathers them into God's family. It creates a new identity. Praise God. Praise God, eh? That's pretty much what Paul does. Check it out. Here's our next heading. Gospel gratefulness, our second heading, verses 2 to 4. We always thank God for all of you. Of course, Paul and Silas and Timothy are thankful. If you're into grammar, that's the first verb in the entire letter. We are giving thanks. They're thankful because faith, hope, and love, that classic Christian trifecta, they're shaping the Thessalonians, influencing them, and causing them to live fruitful lives. And not only that, but but have a look there at verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Paul, Silas, and Timothy are thankful because the Thessalonian salvation is grounded 
is grounded in God's election of them. Which, of course, is why they don't thank the Thessalonians in verse 2. They thank God. The Thessalonians have become Christian not because of anything they've done, not because of their own merit. It is all because of God. And behind that whole narrative of their conversion stand these two undeniable truths. The Thessalonians are loved by God, and they are chosen by God. Now notice one more thing back in verse 3. The author refers to, did you see this? He refers to our God and Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, Silas, Timothy, the Thessalonians, they're all in the same boat. They're all in the same family. Because God's gospel, which Paul, Silas, and Timothy will call our gospel, has become their gospel. The Thessalonians have owned the gospel for themselves. Which leads us to gospel reception. Our third heading, verses 5 and six. Now, if the gospel, if the gospel came to the Thessalonians simply as words, if it came simply as words, I'm not sure we'd have a letter to them in our Bibles. But it didn't. See there in verse five, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. God was at work by his Spirit, through Paul, Silas, and Timothy, so that the Thessalonians did not merely hear the gospel, but they actually received it. And did you see the the personal, the intentional ministry that accompanied that gospel preaching? It's there at the end of verse 5. You know, you know how we lived among you for your sakes. You see, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they didn't just back the truck up, dump the gospel, and then jet off. They stayed, speaking out, living out the gospel of Jesus. And their example caught. It stuck. It made an impression. You know, it's easier to imitate someone if you see a lot of them, right? Super thankful that my mom and dad are here from the States to visit. They were here uh, this morning at church, not here this afternoon. But you can spot my dad from a mile away. You wouldn't have uh, any trouble picking him out. Um, Genetics plays a part in that, but we share a lot in common because 20 years will do that to you, right? The Thessalonians became imitators of Paul, Silas, and Timothy, especially in this way, especially in the sense that they joyfully welcomed the message, the gospel, despite intense suffering. Though it was tough, though it cost them, the Thessalonians opened their front door to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they welcomed it in. And here's the thing, when you welcome the gospel into your life, you also invite real change. And that's what happened. So gospel fruit, our fourth heading there, verses 7 to 9. So have a look in verse 7. Stay with me. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Thessalonians copied Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and even the Lord Jesus to such a degree that other Christians are now copying them. I think that's neat. They became imitators, but now they're the ones that are being imitated. 
They became the model. They became the example, the real-life, old-fashioned, before-video tutorial. And there's more fruit. Look at verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. The gospel got welcomed, and then the gospel got shared everywhere. The gospel song had been in the Thessalonians' ears, just turning over, ringing in there, bouncing around. And when they got the tune, instead of dropping the mic, the Thessalonians picked it up. They plugged in the speakers, they jacked those things up to 11, and let it rip. That same gospel tune amped up, blasted out. Those same chords of peace and grace that they received now shredded the airwaves as they sounded out everywhere. Till people everywhere were humming that same song, or at least remembered where they heard it. You know, in certain places, Paul and Silas and Timothy, they didn't even have to do pioneering gospel preaching because the Thessalonians had already shared the gospel in those places. They were keen. That's real sweet gospel fruit, public gospel proclamation. But there's also the fruit of personal change. And the Thessalonians, man, they bore a harvest. So have a look there at the end of verse 9. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. The Thessalonians got real. They ditched the dud little g gods for the only real capital G God. They did a 180. They turned from the dying and false gods of this world to serve the living and true God of the universe. It's an action that was anchored in their hope because of the gospel. So gospel hope there in verse 10. So here's the hope, and this is also a great little summary of the gospel that's been referred to in the letter a number of times already. Here it is. And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. So we've already heard, right, the Thessalonian Christians, they had it hard. But they had rock-solid hope. Jesus died, God raised him from the dead, Jesus will return, and he will rescue us from God's wrath. The Thessalonians knew that, and so they waited well. And while they waited, it seemed to me that they made exceptionally good use of their time. So now take a breath and take a step back with me. We've been through the letter But what we want to do now is we want to think about what are the gospel implications. That's the last heading. What are the gospel implications for us? Paul, Silas, and Timothy, man, they are overflowing with thankfulness. I hope you pick that up. They are overflowing with thankfulness because they write to a saved and a changed people. They write to a people who have not only drunk deeply from the well of the gospel, but who have also offered that same undiluted drink, that brilliant mix of grace and peace to so many other thirsty souls around him. So this letter, it was written to the Thessalonians, of course, but in God's providence, in his wisdom, it's included in Scripture for us as well. 
So let me ask us three questions. And look, I'm not against an afternoon nap. It's a great thing, but now's the time to wake up. Now's the time to wake up. Let's do it. Question number one. Here it is. Are you gazing out the window at the gospel? Or have you opened your front door and welcomed the gospel in? Let me ask you again. Are you gazing out the window at the gospel? Or have you opened your front door and welcomed the gospel in? We heard the reality in verse 10. God's son already came once. He died and was raised to life. He's coming back. Jesus is coming, but God's wrath is also coming. How do you want to deal with that? Turn away from the Son and face God's wrath, His anger on your own? Or turn to the Son? Turn to the one who faced God's wrath on the cross so we wouldn't have to. Look, you do not want to be in the path of God's wrath. That's what we deserve, right? That's what we deserve, but it's also what Jesus freely rescues us from if we trust him. So stay with me. Here's what I reckon. I reckon that the gospel, the gospel is the ultimate disruptive force on the entirely normal, entirely Christless path of life that leads straight to the wrath of God. That's the path the Thessalonians were on. And it's the path that all of us were on as well, but for the grace of God. So here it is, plain and simple. The way to escape God's wrath is to accept God's Son. I'll say it again. The way to escape God's wrath is to accept God's Son. So please, if you haven't already, if you haven't already, open the front door. Accept God's Son and escape God's wrath. Here's the second question. Question two. If God's wrath is real, which it is, and if the promise of rescue from God's wrath through God's Son is real, which it is, which it most definitely is, then who might you give the gospel to? So friends, aren't you so thankful for the gospel? If you're a Christian, aren't you grateful? Aren't you grateful for whoever it was, someone who showed you in Scripture, someone who told you about God's salvation from his wrath through his son Jesus? But who else needs to hear it? Who else needs to hear it? The Lord's message is going to ring out from you to who? How might God work through you in 2019? How might he work through you, not just next year, but beyond, for the furtherance of his gospel so that more people might know what a wonderful Savior Jesus is? All right, we're there. Third and final question. Where does your hope for real, lasting change lie? Where does your hope for real, lasting change lie. Self-discipline, perhaps? Goal-setting? 
financial independence, new relationships, better relationships. There's nothing wrong with those things. But none of them, not one of them, will change you as deeply or as comprehensively or as permanently as the gospel of Jesus Christ. What's so different about the gospel? Well, here's the mistake we make. We fall into the trap of thinking that the gospel is just another piece of information. But it's not. The gospel is so much more than information. In fact, it is God's power for salvation and God's power for transformation. It's what we've seen in 1 Thessalonians 1. The gospel came to the Thessalonians and they changed. They were transformed. So that's why when you scroll through Insta, when you listen to your favorite podcast, when you flick on ABC, SBS, NPR, BBC, whatever your favorite three-letter acronym is, when you read The West, when you read The Economist, Runner's World, Life Hacker, Check the Weather, all of that is simply information. And none of that, none of it, can change you like the gospel can. Only the gospel, only the gospel will produce real, lasting change and good, lasting fruit in your life. So if you're looking at yourself, like I do sometimes, if you're looking at yourself and you're thinking, you know, far out my branches, my branches are looking a bit bare, what do you do? What's the solution? Go to the root. Go to the source. Go to the gospel. Go to Jesus again and again and again and again. So on the doorstep of 2019, boy, it's only a few days away, let's resolve. Let's resolve not so much to change ourselves, but to be changed as the gospel of Jesus Christ sinks down and takes root in our lives. Now hear this, friends, hear this. I don't want you to miss this. God's determination to save you and change you. God's determination to save you and change you through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is far greater. It is far superior to your own determination and ability to change yourself. And that's a great thing, I reckon. So depend on him. Depend on God. Trust him. And let the water of the gospel soak right in. So here's the challenge. How about this? And look, I am preaching 100% to myself first at this point. Know that. Let's start the day. Let's start the day looking at the Bible instead of looking at our phones. Before we even look at ourselves in the mirror, let's take a good look at Jesus. Before we dwell on the joys, the hopes, the worries, the anxieties of the day, let's just dwell on Jesus. What a wonderful Savior he is. And what an amazing salvation he's accomplished for us.
So friends, may God continue to change us through the gospel in the year ahead for our good and for the good of others and for his eternal glory. Amen.